0: This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's word. Anyway, thanks for saying yes to church today and being here. How many people are excited for what God's going to do? That's good, I love the energy. Uh, this week um, our pastoral staff had the honor and privilege of being able to go away to Eastern Oregon for a couple of days to what's called intermission and we gathered with, I think there's like roughly 300 pastors or 300 people there this week where we were just able to get challenged and recharged and it was an amazing week um, and it really made me thankful for you guys um, and I hope that you realize that your presence is, is felt when you're here and it's missed when you're not here. And I think like a lot of times we come in, you're like, there's a lot of faces, like they don't need me. Like no, like God, God loves when you're here, I love when you're here. The energy you bring is felt and Notice. So please keep that in mind. Like, we sincerely believe in community. And if we believe that um, it, that something powerful could happen just online, we would never do service in person again. But that's not the case. And so, thanks for being here. Thanks for making it a priority. It was also really entertaining because PK was doing a QA um, with the main speaker of this event um, on Tuesday morning. And uh, the guy had no idea that our church name was Relevant Life Church. And he's like, dude, I hate this word relevant. And like, he's just going off and, and everyone's looking at our table and we're like, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. Sorry, we talked to him in the parking lot and roughed him up a little afterwards. I'm just kidding. We didn't. Uh, we didn't. We didn't tell him at all. But we were like, "It's whatever. Like, just come to our church. Don't hate on us." Anyway, um, before we jump into the message today, I want to take a few moments and just unpack a little further that video that we just walked, um, started, or we just listened through. Um, And so we're going to talk just real quickly about this 90-day giving challenge. How many people heard last week for the first time about 90-day giving challenge? How many people heard this week about 90-day giving challenge? You should have raised your hand for that one because you're here. But uh, I'm super excited because this is our first ever 90-day giving challenge. And around this time of year, our church for over 14 years or right around 14 years now has typically come and challenged our community in some way in their giving capacity, whether that's something outside the church, something inside the church. And I'm excited for this year because this is something we've never done before. And with that being said, I do recognize that there's a lot of skepticism around giving, right? Some of you, I full-heartedly believe you're like, I don't know where to pull tithe out to give it to the church. Like, I don't have it in my budget. I get that. I know some of us are like, I don't know if the church is trustworthy of the finances. It seems like a little little suspect that they're always asking for my money, right? Like, there's these things that we deal with. But with that being said, God commands us to give. And I don't think he he, only—he doesn't just command, he actually embodies it, like, you looked at, like, John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave. Like, God gave. Like, he He embodies this idea of giving. And so, when we come and we do this, this is giving a practical opportunity to walk out a spiritual practice, okay? And this is an opportunity that, like, we want as a community for all of us to participate in. So, my encouragement today is that you would not just throw that that card away that's on your t- like chair. I know, like, I hate them, too. And we throw them under the chair. I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm, like, walking. I'm like, I hate this piece of paper. I hate paper. I like electronics. It's fine. Anyway, but... Uh, Take that card home today and pray about it. Write a note on your phone. I'm dead serious. Because if you're like, I'll think about it. We all know that's like you just saying, I'm purposely going to forget about this. Right? Anybody with me? So take that home. Say, I will take this home. Raise your hand. Raise it. Everyone's quiet now. You're all like, high fives. Let's go, Jesus. And now it's like, giving. I hate giving. Okay? So take the card home and do something about it. I really believe that God wants to work through this. Um, and I'll be the first one to tell you, yes, the church needs its, its community's finances to do what it's doing, but I believe you need to be giving your finances to God so God can be doing what he wants to do in your life. I wholeheartedly believe that. God promises, this is the only thing he says testament is giving. And I don't even know what the percentage is, but it is low, the amount of people in our nation that give to church. And that's just the avenue right now that we give to God. Um, and if you don't like that, you can find a different avenue, but you need to be giving your fr- first fruits to God and saying, God, here this is, I trust this. Um, Trust this to you. And so um, my other encouragement real quick, and I know I'm taking a long time on this, but the challenge starts like this week. Um, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open because a lot of times I think we come to challenges like this and we're like, I gave $500, so I'm hoping by the end of the 90 days I get a $500 check from an anonymous donor in my mailbox. And that's not always how God works. But I guarantee he will work in some way in your life. It may not be the way you expect it, but it will be better than what you expect it. And the last thing I want you to understand is this is not a challenge that our leadership is coming to you and asking you to do and not participating in. I want that to settle in. Allie and I have already talked, and we're going to be raising for 90 days our tithe from 10% to 15%, and that's going to stretch us. We're going to have to cut on things, but we believe that's what we're supposed to stretch with this year. And so we're going. God, here's this money, and we believe that you will be faithful in 2023 and beyond because we've been faithful to you. We trust you with our needs, and this is such a powerful principle. And I'm preaching the sermon. We're going to, or sermon series we're going to be getting into in a couple weeks, but I just want to really challenge you to take this seriously. So say, I'm taking it seriously. God heard you say that, so now I got to. Anyway, um, I'm excited. Today we get to conclude a long, a month-long journey we've been on call called "Fight." Turn your neighbor and say "Fight,", Fight. and they turn back to me. I got to give him the Jesse Davis crazy eyes and say, "Sorry, I'm a lover, I'm not a fighter." <laughs> Look at Jesse. No one said it. Say, it. "I'm a lover, not a fighter." Come on, just just give the crowd a like a glance real quick. Yeah, see. <laughs> People are intimidated now. All right. Anyway, I'm excited for today's message. Um, but can we first give it up for our lead pastor really quick for this message series? This series has been really great. Um, and I'm thankful for that, that he's been Holy Spirit led in it, because honestly, like there's a, someone commented on Instagram um, or Facebook Messenger a couple weeks ago, was like, God's moving. And he really is. I hope this series has taken root in your heart. And so I'm excited. Over the course of the last month, we've been talking about this idea that as, as we've been saved and called by Jesus, we're called to more than just living a life of mediocrity. Like when we say this word "fight," we're not talking about throwing fists. We're talking about living with tenacity. Say tenacity, and so we recognize that we're supposed to do something greater than ourselves. Our life is not spent to be um, is not supposed to be spent being dictated by what we see and feel, but what, but what we believe and know to be true. It's a life that that only you can live with the Holy Spirit coursing through your body and your life. It's a life that we're called to live, and a lot of times I think we settle for comfort because Christianity can be couched in this pretty bow of comfort, but really, God calls us to this idea of fight, and so I hope that as you've been with us, you've been challenged by this idea of fight. This last week, I really want us to grasp this idea there is no reality you can live in where neutral existence is your best existence. Like, let that sink in. There is no reality that you can live in where neutral existence is your best existence. And I know that's like, no, duh. But think about it. Like, how many times do we fight so that we can just be comfortable at the end of the week? How many many times do we just work harder so that we can find a place of peace and comfort at some point, rather than recognizing that every day is a fight? We're always fighting. There's always something to be grasped for. This life was not meant to be a a coast. It was meant to be in, in full gear going forward. And so this series has been super powerful. Each week we have talked about a topic of worth fighting for. So the first week we talked about fighting for faith, and I hope that you realize that faith is a gift. Like Jesus recognized that humanity did not in and of themselves have a whole lot of things worth believing and fighting for, so he died so that we would have faith, so that we could believe in something beyond anything we could do. That's a, that's a fight worth fighting for. The second week, we talked about fighting for the city, and I hope that you wake up every day grateful for the city. As much as people hate on Oregon, Oregon's amazing. It's awesome. Pastor Will Caesar who was here a couple weeks ago. He's like, dude, Oregon, Oregon's got a bad rep, but you guys are awesome. Like I, and it's, it's funny, but we're like in the armpit of the United States. I don't know. People hate Oregon, I guess. But God's amazing, and he's moving here. And I hope that you wake up and you're like excited. We don't smell like BO. It's fine. <laughs> Um, week three, um, like not on, on purpose for us, but the Holy Spirit's direction, Pastor Will talked about fighting for this house. And then last week, PK talked about an amazing message about fighting for the generations. And I hope that you walk into church every week feeling blessed that generations gather here together every week. This week, um, the speaker intermission had every generation, like every decade, basically stand up individually at different times. And then he made everyone look around the room and said, you guys need each other to make it through this fight. And I love that. And I'm like, the same thing needs to be said of, uh, said of us, this church in this city right now. God's called us to this idea of generational living. So today, um, I'm going to do my best to bookend this series in a way that challenges us to um, process this idea of fight through lifelong life change. And I'm just going to call it out from the beginning. This message is so simple and, and elementary that like some of you are like, I've heard this a thousand times. But I'm forewarning you that because I don't want you to check out. Because I felt, I felt something rise up in my spirit this week that, uh, that said, Trenton, you need to work harder on this area of your life. And I think there's a lot of people coasting through life right now and you actually feel depressed by how your life's going and you need to wake up and realize God didn't create you to live the life the way you're living it. He created you with opportunity to fight for. And so that's my challenge today as I come before you. And so I want to do that by looking at a question. PK opened up the series by asking, he said, who are you fighting and what are you fighting for? Who are you fighting and what are you fighting for? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn or tap with me on your phone too to Joshua chapter 14. I know a lot of us just read it on the screen. That's totally fine. But I'm a wholehearted believer in hands-on learning. So I think the more you interact and scroll, the more you get out of it. So um, if, you, if you want to turn to that really quick, you can. I'm going to be reading just nine verses this morning. Before we jump into it, I want to give a little bit of context. And the first thing you need to know is that every time you pick up the Bible, you are picking up a story that starts at point A and ends at point B. It's one massive story. And that can be a little bit confusing at times, but it's always important to grasp that because there's a lot going on throughout the Bible. And especially in the Old Testament where we're going to be looking, it's important because a lot of times the stories that you're reading in the Old Testament connect to something that previously happened before. And so in Joshua 14, if you just read the story, yes, it's going to be powerful, but I want you to understand the situation that a man named Caleb found himself in when he, when he stepped into this, this, this situation that we're going to read this morning. And so um, for, in order for us to all kind of be on the same page, I want to take a few moments today just to give us a quick spark notes overview of the events that led up to Joshua 14. Sound good? Yeah. Smile on your face. I love it. Okay, so backing up uh, to the first book of the Bible, we see in Genesis chapter 12, God come to a man named Abram. Say Abram. His name later became Abraham, and he comes to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to take you out of this place that you're in. I'm going to take you to a new place. Land And it's going to, like we now know it as the promised land. So we call it the promised land. And he's like, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But three chapters later, God gives more details into this promise and says, so Abraham, this this promise still stands. But like at the same time, at some point down the line, your descendants will find themselves in a nation that is not their own. There, There will be strangers there. They'll eventually be enslaved. And for 400 years, they will be in this nation that is not their own. But I promise that I will come and I will deliver them out of it. So hundreds of years later, God sends a man named Moses. Say, Moses. And Moses comes, and through miracle after miracle, Moses comes in and gets Pharaoh's attention and leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and takes them to the edge of the promised land. Say the promised land. And in Numbers 13, God commands Moses to send men into this promised land to see the land that they are about to take. So, so Moses selects 12 different men to go and investigate this land, okay? So 12 men go in, and for 40 days they are gone. They are overviewing this amazing promised land, which we're going to get into more of what the promised land means here a little down the line. But they go into this, this land, they come back, and they report in Numbers 13, 27, says this, We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does, say it does. It does, it does flow with milk and honey. In other words, it's as good as God has promised. It's, it's everything and more that God has promised. It, here is its fruit, and they brought back a massive, like one thing of grapes, like a grapevine that was like over a pole, right? It's like just amazing fruit. It says, but, say but. but. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And so just we're all aware, like one commentator wrote that actually the walls that were fortified in the promised land, some of the walls were 30 to 50 feet high and 15 feet thick. So massively fortified walls. And then also the sentence of Anak, we pass over that because we don't understand. Those were actual literal giants. Like, if I remember right, Goliath actually has relations, like David Goliath, like the stone knocked him in the head, like tall guy. Like the Anak, like Goliath had relations to Anak. So they were little giants. So they walk in, they're like, this is great, but like, God, how are we going to do this? And so the Israelites end up finding themselves in a place of fear of fear, where they're going, I don't know what lies ahead. How are we going to do this? And so despite the land being absolutely amazing, despite the nation of Israel witnessing God perform mind-blowing plagues um, to, to get Pharaoh to let them go, despite them witnessing God split a sea in half that they could walk through it, and despite God promising that he would be with them to walk into this land and take this land, they chose fear and to not walk into the land. And two of, the 12, two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, guys, like, no, we should take this. We, we can do it. If God said we can do it, we can do it. And the nation actually ignores Joshua and Caleb, and God then says, okay, everyone above the age of 20 will not be allowed to enter this promised land. And for 40 years, one, one year for each day that you were in the promised land, the spies were in the promised land spying it out, you will wander in the desert until you are all dead. And then your descendants will walk in this promised land. So it's a super sad story, but I think there's a lot of correlations for our own life today. And so for 45 45 years, 45 years later, after all this takes place, like all those who had walked into the promised land, all those 20 and above died, their descendants had stepped into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb are still alive, and that is where we pick up in our text today. So Joshua chapter 14, it says this. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua. Say Joshua. And Joshua at this point is the leader of the Israelites. Moses is gone. Joshua is the leader. So it says the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, Gilgal, and and Caleb's um, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Kadesh Barnea. Man, these words about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. See, Caleb believed that they could do it. So he came back going, no, let's do this, and the rest were like, no, like, this is stupid. We're going to die. And he says, but my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. And I didn't get specifically into this, but they started spreading bad reports about the promised land because they didn't want to go in. He says, I, however, followed the Lord wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I love that word. So on on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord, your God, wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive 45 years since the time he said to Moses, since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. Well, sorry, while Israel moved about, moved about in the wilderness, I'm struggling reading today, but I at least can talk. Uh, that's good. So says, so here I am today, 85 years old, 85 years old. Anybody 85 in the room? No? Okay. So no one's lived, anyone older than 85 in the room? All right, no one's lived as long as caleb okay so i want, I want us to all take this to heart then it says i'm still as strong today as the day moses sent me out i'm just as vigorous to go out to battle that word battle kind of correlates to fight right now as i was then now give me this hill country that the lord promised me that day you yourself heard then that the anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified but the lord helping me i will drive them out just as he said then joshua blessed caleb son of jephunneh and gave hebron as his inheritance so Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord God of Israel wholeheartedly. Say wholeheartedly. wholeheartedly. So to conclude um, our final week of fight this week, I want to title my message, When You Die, What Will People Say You Fought For? When you die, what will people say that you fought for? Would you pray with me? God, I just pray right now. God, over the words I'm about to share. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just come upon me, God, and that he would speak through me. God, I pray that each person here today would not let a simple concept, God, a familiar concept, pass their life by. God, I pray that each one of us would be challenged today by this idea of fight. God, and that would lead to lifelong life change. God, I pray for there to be a holy discontent in the hearts, God, of people here, God, that, that recognize they're living less than best, God, in areas of their life. God, in that I come against condemnation that would, that would, that would um, come down on them for that, God. But I pray for a conviction that says, Jesus, I can do better. I need your Holy Spirit. I want to do better. I want to fight for all that you've given me. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. amen. I know it's a bit of an odd question this morning, but how many people in here before have thought about their funeral? What it will look like one day. Anyone? This week I spent a little bit of a deep dive, not too long, on Google asking questions about the idea of death and funerals. And I didn't find anything too obscure, but I did find it really interesting the amount of articles that talked about what the proper age is for you to start planning your funeral. I found it really funny. One article said, how old are you today? That's precisely the age you should consider starting to plan your own funeral. So like the seventh graders in the room, like, yeah, plan your own funeral, I guess. Like another article said, there's no right answer for what age you should start planning your funeral, but then proceeded to answer why sooner is better than later. Another article seems to suggest that planning in your 30s was your best option. And being Google, there was like a ton of different articles about, about planning, planning death and, and funeral and all these different things. But I found it just so interesting the amount that focused on when and how you should be planning your funeral. But at the same time i also understood it because this year we went on two cruises and when you go on a cruise like you don't have service for days so you kind of have to think through like all right who's going to handle emergencies back home if like something were to happen to you or something at home and so we had to process through this and it was funny because in august and it's not funny if it were to happen but in august pk and Ron are texting Allie and i were at summer camp like we're hanging out with kids and they're like Um, Yeah. By the way, like if we don't come back because like we hit an iceberg, like the Titanic or something, like here's all all this stuff. So like here's where our will is, and like here's what you need to do with Yeti, because like in the Reich household, like like animals aren't animals, like they're family. So like they're like take care of Yeti. We don't care about anything else. You can burn the house down, just keep Yeti alive. Um, And so they're going through, and I found it entertaining. Like obviously it wouldn't be if they if they actually died, but like looking back now, it's like just really funny because it's like you guys are going on a cruise. You're supposed to be relaxing. It's not like you're adrenaline junkies, like about to go base jumping. Like you're not going to actually die. But anyway, you got to be prepared. And so all that being said, processing through what will happen upon your death is a really interesting thing to do. Like who will attend your funeral, and why will, they attend your, why will they attend your funeral? What will they think of you at your funeral? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it is a really interesting thing to do. And obviously as you age throughout life and your responsibility for your loved ones grows, it's really wise to begin thinking through the practical ramifications of your death. Like who will be responsible for your responsibilities when you die? Like who gets what, who's in charge? And obviously these are heavy questions, but they're very important questions also. And as I processed this idea, this whole conversation this week, I found found it really ironic because like for you and me, like we can hardly tell, like like plan for what's the like what's going to happen unexpectedly in the next three months, let alone like how are we going to plan for our unexpected death in the future. But I also realized there's a massive amount of wisdom in this thinking as well. And I bring all this up today, not to downplay the idea of death, but to highlight the gravity of your life right now. Whatever age, whatever season, wherever you find yourself, because I know that like from from hearing that the older you get, sometimes it feels like your life becomes more and more meaningless, and I think that's actually false. I think your life becomes more and more meaningful. And so I think all of us have to go, okay, so whatever age and season we are in right now, like like what is my death going to look like one day? Like what will be the ramifications of that death? and i realize again how elementary this whole topic is we have heard a thousand times this idea of like what will be written on your tombstone, and, like, who will be at your funeral one day? Like, if you're a graduation speaker, like, you know the quintessential foundation of your graduation speech is, like, to talk to your classmates about what they will, what will be said of them in the end, right? Everyone's been there, a graduation speech, you already know what they're going to say before they say it. They're like, can we just move on and start passing the diplomas out because I already know you're going to say this, right? Tim McGraw wrote a whole song about it called Live Like You Were Dying. Anybody know that? Don't judge me because I'm a heathen. I know that song. Like, it's, like, so good, right? Um, I just forgot the first line though. I went skydiving. I went, I went, slaying it. Okay, we're good. We don't have to go any further. I'm to embarrass you for that. I just want to make sure. I want to prove everyone else with he- heathens in the room too. So <laughs> thank you for that awesome laugh. I appreciate that. Like you're trying too hard, Trent. It's fine. What I want to understand today though is because this path of thinking is so familiar. I oftentimes, like I just said about the name of Jesus, I oftentimes think we take it for granted. And I wanted to set in today that you will die one day. And like a lot of us, out of fear of what that looks like, I think, choose to push it off rather than let it define what our life is going to be about. And I love it because Scripture values this type of thinking. Moses in Psalm 912 said this, "God teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom." See, Moses understood that there was wisdom in thinking about death and the way it adds to your life right now. A few years ago, I was at my, my four-year-grandparents' household, and many of you guys um, were a part of the church, and my four-year-grandparents were pastors at this church. And if you, if you were here and you knew them, you know that my grandma's probably one of the coolest, spiritually deepest people you'd ever come into contact with. She's just a well of wisdom. And so whenever I get around my grandma, I love to just ask her, like, Grandma, like, what are you learning from God? Like, or what, like, what do you feel about this, this thing going on in life like, based on Scripture? Because she always has just recall from her mind of God's Word. And I remember that day, for some reason, she shared with me what she read in her devos, and that verse has stuck with me ever since. I even preached a youth sermon on it, but it's Ecclesiastes 7.2. It says this, it's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. I just want that to sink in. It's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties, because every one of us dies, so the living should take that to heart. Why do you think that the writer said this? Like, really process that. Like, why? Like, isn't the whole point of life to have fun and to enjoy it? Why would we go to a place of mourning? Because there's wisdom going, I will end up here one day. What will be said when I get there? And the writer that wrote this was a man by the name of Solomon. And Solomon was, lift, was gifted by and labeled by God as the wisest man to walk the earth. And so in all of his wisdom, he stood there and said, okay, the best place to spend my time is in a place of death because I know that eventually I will be there and someone will say something about me. And so as I evaluated the heart of the series and felt challenged by its contents, I thought the best way to end the series was to take a page from Solomon's book and think about death and ask the question, when I die, what will people say I fought for? And this question causes us to evaluate what we have fought for so far in life and then determine what what we will be caught dead fighting for when our time comes. And the room's really silent, so that either means you're bored out of your mind or, like, somewhere this is sinking in. And I hope that it's sinking in. Because for me, it was like, I was sitting here going through this this week, and I'm like, Trenton, this is, again, I just keep saying it's so elementary, it's so basic. But I'm like, why do I not spend more time focused on it? Because I don't know about you, it's like everything else seems to fade out of, out of picture, and the most important things seem to remain when I think this, like, think this through. Like, when my mom was threatened with cancer, like, and she still is, like, there's sometimes it's like those moments, like, I could have lost my mother, like, like, so many other things started to fade out of importance in my life. That relationship became more key. Moments with my mom became more key. And I think all of us have this. People that have actually lost someone like that, like, you cherish those moments, right? You cherish those moments. You go, man, I wish I would have spent more time with this person. So death makes us think in a different way about life. And I felt like as we talked about this idea of fight, this tenacious fight, we had to process through the lens of death. So quickly this morning, it's not going to be a super long message the rest of the way, I don't think, but I want to just talk about a couple of things that I noticed in Caleb's life that help us address this question, when we die, what will people say we fought for? Because I feel like Caleb teaches us a couple things. And the first one is this, choose what you are fighting for. Choose what you are fighting for. Sadly, I think many people treat picking the fight of their lives like they pick going to a restaurant on date night, and all the dating and married people in the room know what I'm talking about, right? Like the night comes, and you're like, "Honey, like, what do you want for dinner?" Like, "Oh, I don't care, whatever you want." And you're like, "Okay, I'll take this, this, or this," and they're like, "Actually, none of those sound good." And then you're like, "Okay, like, what do you want?" And you're like, "Actually, I don't think I'm hungry, so like, we're date night's off. Like, I don't, like don't know what's happening. And like this, like anyone been there? Don't lie, I know you've been there, right? I'm never the one that says I don't care. No, anyway. Uh, <laughs> to mess it around. <laughs> like, leave the stage. And I, I, I bring this up today because I think it's entertaining when it comes to date night, right? We can laugh about it, but this is a serious and dangerous thing when it comes to the fight of our lives. But this is like dead set. Like, that is such a good correlation to oftentimes how we approach what we're fighting for. See, the idea of fight requires t- tenacious decision-making, not a go-with-the-flow approach. Choosing to fight for something is a well-thought-out decision that shapes your actions, your choices, and your purpose. And I think we all know what I mean by this. I think if I were to go around the room this morning, I think multiple of us in here could go, I experienced, I was a product or impacted by someone that made a tenacious decision that chose what they fought for with their life. Anyone like know what I'm talking about? Like, yes, I have someone that comes to mind. This week as I started processing through people in my life, there are so many people I could go down the line. There's people sitting in this room right now because the tenacious decision you made you have impacted my life, and I'm standing on this platform because of it. There's Bible teachers in here. There's board members in here. There's people that text me and go, you're doing good. And there's this, that, that comes from a decision to go, my fight, my life is going to fight for someone else and for something in their life. And so as I started going down this line, there was one specific man that came to my mind in my life, and that was my freshman basketball coach, my freshman year of high school. And uh, Alex Pilgrim's in the room today, and he he can attest to this man too. But this coach was someone that believed in me on and off the court. Um, This coach was someone who spoke into my life and challenged me to become the best I could be in all areas of life. And I I would guarantee that, I think Alex would admit too, that was like the best year of basketball we ever played. And it was because that coach was way more than what was happening on the court. He cared so much about what young men did with their life and how they were going to be when they got older that it, it changed the atmosphere of that team. And if I took time to go on, um, I, could, I could go on to explain many many different, many different moments and times where I felt like this man was fighting for me. But there's one in particular that came to mind for this message, and I want to share with you today. See, there was a, a practice that we came to one night, and um, Coach decided that he was going to come in, and instead of doing regular practice, he, was go- he created basically drills for certain players to do that either complemented and stretched their strengths or like, totally showed and stretched their weaknesses. And so the whole point of this practice is each player would stand around as a player did this. Like, I think I had to shoot shots. Alex had, like, run lines or something. Like, there's, like, all these different things. And um, basically the whole point of these drills was that, like, he wanted us to, A, believe we could overcome a challenge. And, B, he wanted a camaraderie of the team to go, you can do this even though I'm not on the court with you. Long story short, though, we racked up a ton of lines to run that night because we kept failing in those drills. And I don't remember like why coach did this or what he was doing, but I just remember we were gassed after running for a while and all of a sudden coach pulls us aside, don't remember what he said, but I will forever hold on to what he did and it will forever speak louder than anything he could have said over my life. And he's like, I'm gonna run the rest of the lines for you guys. And so we stood on the baseline watching our coach that was definitely older, if he's watching a lot, I love you, uh, run these lines for us. And I'm a freshman in high school, 15 years old. I'm like, no coach had ever cared this much. Most coaches just screamed at me. And for some reason, that sunk down in my heart. And no joke, for the rest of my high school years, he even came to this church for a while. This coach impacted my life. And forever, he will have a voice in my life. Because I knew that night that he was fighting for me. And over and over, he made decisions that I could tell he was fighting for me. And you realize, that night, he did not just come into practice and be like, I feel generous tonight. He was trying to prove something. And he had predetermined to choose to fight for young men. And this story of Caleb jumps out to me because I realized that Caleb embodied the same thing. See, Caleb saw something he knew that God wanted for him, and he was like, I'm going to die fighting for that. I would rather die than miss out on that. So despite the majority around him, what they thought, despite how daunting the fight looked, he chose to fight. And the text we just read a few moments ago tells us that Caleb was 40 years old when he went into the promised land, when he got to spy out the promised land. So reading into this text, that that's not what's, what's not fully there, we can tell that for the first four decades of Caleb's life, the majority of the first four decades of Caleb's life, he spent his life in slavery. And as, as bougie Americans with free choice, we, we think that wearing masks is like oppression, okay? So it's really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of, of a man that had no, like, no choice over his life for 40 years. 40 years! He sat there and it was, was told what to do. He had no, there was no hope and dream in his heart. He probably cried out to God every day. The Hebrews didn't say, God, please deliver us from this. And so up until recently, his nation was in this situation. And finally, he gets the choice. He's standing at the edge of the promised land. He gets the choice what he's going to fight for. And I love it because out of of 12 guys, two of them said, I'm going to fight even if I die for what God called me to fight for, what God said I could have. See, and a lot of times we, we don't understand the promised land because, like, we live in a great land already, and we're like, we don't see a promised land. It's like, it doesn't compute in, in, in application for us. But for them, like, this representation of the promised land was this idea of abundance. See, the words flowing with milk and honey was an, an ancient Near Eastern phrase that they would use to say this is a place of abundance. This place was everything that they could imagine, This was Disneyland, right? Like, this is, like, amazing. Like, it was the place of freedom and hope and and free choice and the ability to praise God and to do life with God. And so Caleb chose this, and he fought for this. And here's what we need to realize. All of us find ourselves every day standing on the edge of a promised land. Every day we wake up, and we are faced with the decision whether or not we will enter that promised land that day. And this may be a hard hard for us to grasp because we don't have a physical promised land standing in front of us to go and take. But physical or not, it's there. Every day, the promises, provision, abundance, and freedom and people of God stand in front of you, and you have a choice to be mediocre that day or to fight for it. Every day, your spouse that you wake up to in the morning by, you have a choice to fight for that promised land. Your children, that like whether whatever age they are, you have a choice to fight for them your family, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, everyone, your friends, you have, you have a choice to fight for that promised land. This city is a promised land, and I know the comments that we get about everything that goes wrong in the state of Oregon. I already call it out today, but like this state and this city is a promised land, and God's waiting for some people to wake up and go, I'm gonna fight for it. Otherwise, move away. I mean, that's what so many people are doing. It's sad, but it's like we're here for a reason. Fight for it. This, your job, your coworkers, your neighbors are a promised land. Anybody else just like get home from work and like, I don't want to talk to my neighbors. I will stand convicted before God one day because I have passed by so many opportunities to fight for my neighbors. Fight for that promised land. This church, this community, the people sitting next to you. Last night we were at a concert and um, Stephen Furtick, it was really cool to hear him preach live. But he said, there are things that people next to you are struggling with that you would never comprehend. Like you would never guess. And it's so true. Like, do you even know the name of the person that's like couple, couple rows, or a couple of seats down from you in the same aisle? And you know what they're struggling with. They need you to fight. And as much as your opinion and stress load and annoyance meter convince you it's not a prom- promised land, it's a promised land. This week, I found out that nearly 65 million people die each year. That's 178,000 each day, 7,425 each hour, and 120 people each minute. And I realized that in our day and age with social media, we become desensitized to numbers that large. But for every number, there is a person behind that number. That number represents somebody that was known by somebody and knew somebody. That, that number represents somebody that impacted somebody and was impacted by somebody. That person represents somebody that will have a funeral. And someone will be at that funeral, and whether you know what to say or not, whether you're at that funeral or not, someone will be at that funeral saying something. And we will all become that statistic. We will all be a part of that statistic one day. And so we have to ask, what will people say that we fought for? Like if you died today and there was a funeral in two days, what would people say you fought for? I kind of shuddered thinking about what people said Trenton would fight for. The things that I have prioritized in my life that are so self-absorbed, the people closest to me, the, 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 the things I've taken for granted, that like, of course, they're gonna miss me and love me and they'll have good things to say, but like, what, are the, what about the hurts that I've caused? See, we can't determine what people will say about us when we die, but we can choose to live in a way that inspires the narrative they have of us when we die. And this doesn't mean we live for people's approval, but it does mean we live in self-evaluation to go, how am I fighting and what am I fighting for? I think one of the best lessons we can learn in life is that there are very few things that we can actually control, but we can wake up every day and choose what fight we will fight. And one of the greatest tragedies in life is that people don't choose the right fight or they don't choose a fight at all. They spend their whole life fighting for something that doesn't matter or live up to all that God has for them. And if you evaluate Israel's choice through this lens, you realize that Israel's decision to not go in the promised land was actually fighting to settle for less than God's best. In Numbers 14, the nation talked about getting a new leader and going back to slavery over going into the promised land. Talk about mixed priorities, but I'm like, I look looking in the mirror. I'm like, I'm guilty of this too. And I think we all need to ask today, where is our energy and time being expended? Because I think that's a good telltale sign of where our fight is. Is it our hobbies? Is in our work? Is in our comfort? Our security, opinion, video games, shopping, social media, and the list goes on. And it's not like a place of condemnation to say you can't have a good time in life, but is that all your life is? When you get at home at night, do you choose to watch TV or do you choose to have intentional conversations with the people that you are supposed to fight for the most? When you go to work, do you close yourself off and and hunker down to just focus? Or do you go, God, I realize that I've been placed here to fight for the souls of these people, and I'm going to be open to being used by you. A few weeks ago in Young Adults, the pastor we were listening to in our video series used this quote. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things that don't really matter. And when I heard it phrased this way, it really caused me to question whether or not I'm fighting and succeeding at things that don't really matter. Again, I couldn't help but notice as I kept thinking through Caleb's story, the nation of Israel was so focused on fighting to not die that they said they would rather live in slavery than risk dying to live in all that God had for them. I'm like, what what things am I choosing to fight for that are actually enslaving me rather than than giving me access to the life God's called me to live? And so in all this process, we have to realize this. God's best often equals the hardest fight. God's best often equals the hardest fight. There's no such thing as a fight without such a thing as opposition. And a lot of times, as humans, we want to avoid opposition because it's hard. But we have to recognize, like, we were supposed to live in hard. Christianity, I think, is often guilty of trying to sell life with Jesus, Jesus as an easier life, right? We go, there's peace and there's joy. And in a way, we make it sound like there's an alleviation to hardship. But really, like, there isn't. Like, there's, there, there is joy and there is peace and there is hope and there is community, but at the same time, there is hardship. The only thing is, it's like there's purpose to that hardship, and there's an end goal worth fighting for. And as humans, we so hate discomfort that the natural choice for us so often seems to be to take the easy route. But that's why we have to choose what we're fighting for. Say choose. It's a choice. Anything worth, like, worth, like, worth it in this life is a choice. Nothing rarely ever just falls into your lap. And I love that in the story that Caleb was aware that the fight he chose would be hard. In Joshua 14, 12, so 45 years later, when he's unpacking to Joshua, or Caleb's unpacking to Joshua what happened, he says this, Joshua, you yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he heard, or just as he said. In other words, I hear Caleb going like, no, I recognize this is going to be hard, but I also recognize like if this is the right fight and it's God's fight, I'm going to win it and I'm going to do it with God. So we have to choose the right fight, and the second thing that is today, the last thing, is that we need to fight until the end. We need to fight until the end. On July 4th, 1952, Florence Chadwick, an American swimmer known for long-distance open-water swimming, stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. Chadwick was already credited with being the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. But on this July 4th morning, the weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats accompanying her. But despite that, she still began the swim. And about the 15-hour point, she began to doubt her ability to finish the swim and told her mother she didn't think she could make it. And unfortunately, after 15 hours and 55 minutes, she had to stop. And with huge disappointment, she asked her support crew to take her out of the water. Because the fog was so thick, thick that day, she had no idea where she was at. And it wasn't until she got back into the boat that she found out that she was less than a mile away from reaching her destination. And history goes on to tell us that two months later, Chadwick actually attempted to swim again and got there. But I think there's massive correlations today, and the thing that she learned on her first attempt is something that we need to take to heart. See, the greatest tragedy in life, I already said, is choosing the wrong thing to fight for, but the second greatest tragedy is giving up on the fight too soon. And sadly, I think a lot of the people in this room, and I'm not being mean because I've chosen to stop fights too. I think a lot of us have chosen to stop fighting for things we're supposed to be fighting for. And if you haven't yet, there's gonna be great temptation too. Whether it's a relationship in this room, I know there's some parents in here with broken hearts over how your kids are living. Don't stop fighting for them. There's coworkers at your job that are going through incredibly difficult things and in your annoyance, it's easy to dismiss them. Do not stop fighting for them. There's people in this church, I need you to fight for me and I know I need to fight for you. There's people in this church that are struggling with things that you have no comprehension of and they need you to show up week in and week out and bring your smile to church. They need you to plug into a small group. They need you to serve. This church needs you to fight and go, no, I'm gonna trust God with my finances because there's a mission to be had in the city of Salem and God wouldn't have put Relevant Life Church here with all the other churches if Relevant Life Church wasn't gonna do something another church wasn't going to do. He knew that you needed to be here, and some of us need to hear that today. We need to fight, and we need to fight till the end. There needs to be a tenacity that rises up inside of us. that says, I will not settle for anything less than God's best in my life. Despite how hard it is, I'd rather die fighting than live in slavery or mediocre lifestyle. And today, I felt was supposed to remind us of something we've heard a thousand times. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. I ran across an article this week that I shared that, sorry, I ran across an article this week that shared on how in 1993, Vincent Foster, one of President Bill Clinton's advisors, committed suicide. And what President Bill Clinton found out, when he found out, his response was this, it would be wrong to define a life like Vincent Foster's in terms of only how it ended. But as I read this horrible story, and I I was reading the writer talk about this, he said, no matter how much Vincent's friends, family, and colleagues would try to look at his life and see the good, it would always be overshadowed by how he chose to end it. And as much as we don't like that reality, all of us get it. All of us understand it. And obviously he was going through something that was indescribable that would cause him to do that. And so we can't judge that, but we can go and step back and go, I'm not going to end in a way like that is any way other than the God's best for me. See, endings matter. So we need to fight with the end in mind and we need to fight until our end comes. And I've said this before, but I think we're often guilty of not fully grasping what situations have felt like to characters in the Bible. See, we get the privilege of reading the Bible in its whole context. We see how the story ends, so it's easy for us to skip over the emotions and doubts that people must wrestle with. But can you try to imagine for a moment what Caleb would have felt for 45 years waiting for his promised land? Having walked into that promised land and seen with his own eyes and been told by God, this is yours for the taking. And then having to wait in a desert 40 years as he heard people all around him complain over and over, seeing the people that should have been fighting with him dead. He had to sit there 45 years and wait, but he kept fighting. And I love it because when his time comes and he gets to take his promise, he says this, Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moves about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. And I don't know what that looked like physically, but somewhere it's powerful, the motto that Caleb said in his life, I'm just as strong as when I began the fight. Will that be said of us today? And so my question is, have you given up on something you need to be fighting for? These little kids were told of the, of the fable of like the rabbit and the turtle, right? And they have a disagreement about who's faster. So like, let's just race to figure it out. And we find out in the end of the story that the turtle ends up winning because the turtle never stopped. And the rabbit, in, in arrogance and confidence or whatever the reason, he decided to sit down and fell asleep. And the turtle ended up beating him. And the, one of the morals of that story, we're teaching little kids at a young age, is it's not the fastest. It's the one who keeps fighting. And today, some of you need to be reminded to keep fighting. And it was hilarious because I kept sitting this week, kept looking at the sermon, discouraged. I'm like Trent, like you got to stop being so generic. Like you got to be more specific. And finally, I realized, like in my spirit, I was like, I think everyone in this room already knows exactly what fight they're supposed to be fighting. And I, my job today was was sincerely just to go. You need to fight for it. Whether it's that relationship, whether it's a doubt that you've believed in your life, a lie that you've accepted from the enemy that you are no longer worth this life. Whatever it is, you need to fight past that. In closing, I love one more piece of this story in the text, Joshua fourteen nine. It says, Caleb said this, so on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord your God wholeheartedly. And this week that word inheritance jumped off the page to me. And obviously throughout time and culture, inheritance looks different. But at the end of the day, inheritance basically just means something left behind. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Trenton, when you die, what will you have left behind? As you live and as you leave a place, what are you leaving behind? In your job, in your home, what are you leaving behind? If you die tomorrow, what will you have left behind? Around the turn of the 20th century, a group of missionaries became known as one-way missionaries. When they departed for the mission field, they packed up all their belongings into a coffin and bought one-way tickets because they knew they never returned home. A.W. Milne was one of them. He felt called to a tribe of headhunters in the New Hebrides. All the other missionaries to this tribe had been martyred, but Milne found favor. He lived among the tribe for 35 years and never returned home. When he died, the tribe buried him and wrote the following words on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. That's what we say about Jesus today. He died so that there would be light and that you could accept that light and that you could let it change your life and change the lives of those around you. And so my question once again is when you die, what will people say you fought for? And today I don't want some big response. I want you just to reflect on that as I pray and close today. And I hope that, like, my goal today was that you would walk away with a Holy Spirit burden birth. That this would not just be one of those, like, that was a great message, Trenton. Like, this would be something that, like, it keeps rising up in your heart. A month from now, a year from now, ten years from now, the Holy Spirit, Spirit brings it up to your mind. When you're, like, in the middle of a relationship or your marriage, and you're like, I want to quit. And the Holy Spirit goes, remember, remember, remember that message? And it was, like, asking what, you were gonna be, like, what was going to be said of you and what, what you'd fight for. That's what I hope this message does. So God, today I pray that you would just sink this, this, this seed deep down in our hearts. God, I thank you for the, for the gift of life. God, that there's breath inside our lungs today. God, and our fight is not over. I love Moses' words that says, like, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, that we may wisely expend the energy, God, you've given us to expend. God, and I just pray for individuals. God, there's individuals in this room today that I know are tired and weary. God, and there's probably fights that have come to mind, God, that they have given up on or they want to give up on. God, and I pray that there would be a Holy Spirit affirmation and strength that wells up inside of them that makes their blood boil that says, no, I'm not giving up in this fight. God, I pray that there would be marriages, God, that would be better because of this message. God, there would be relationships with parents and their children because of this message. God, I pray that that the city of Salem will be impacted by this whole series, God, this idea of fight. God, I pray that you would just sear into the very depth of our soul this question, when I die, what will people say I fought for? Pray that it would not slip from my mind, Jesus. God, that I would let it determine how I live and what I do. God, despite what others think, God, despite how the circumstance feels, God, I would continue to fight. And we just thank you for it. God, I pray a blessing over all the people in this room today, God, and online. God, I thank you that they're a part of this community. God, I thank you that they're watching. God, you knew they'd be here, God. And I just pray right now, God, blessing over their life and their heart and their soul and their mind, the place they, 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 they work, God, the place they live, God, the relationships they have. God, I pray your blessings over them. God, and we just thank you for it, God. And we also just lift up this 90-day giving challenge today. God, I pray there's people in this room, God, that have been hesitant to give, and I pray that they would take a step, even if it's $5. God, and right now, even if it robs me of my blessing, I pray that you would bless them so much, God, that they would see the power of God at work in their life when they are faithful to give of their first fruits. God, and we just thank you for it today. God, we love you. We're so grateful for the power of your word, God, the power of of Jesus And we just pray that you be glorified today. And we just thank you for it in Jesus name, everyone said amen. Well church you're loved um, and we care about you next week. Um, We have an amazing guest speaker, my uncle Paul, and he's gonna be coming and bringing the word. Um, Also today again is that last day to sign up up for that seminar and I feel like some of you guys need to hear that especially in correlation to fight. You You need to be figuring out what the armor of God looks like for that fight. So anyway, we'll see you in the weeks to come. We love you church. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.